Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, in a change from past programmes, I'm delighted to say we're looking at the charity sector. The UK has approximately 169,000 charities registered, that's as of January this year. Meredith Niles is the Executive Director of Fundraising and Engagement for Marie Curie, which is the UK's leading end-of-life charity, and it provides frontline nursing and hospice care alongside a wealth of information and support on all aspects of dying, death and bereavement. Meredith, so first of all, welcome to the podcast. I notice here, by the way, that your responsibilities, um, if I've got this right, um, uh, as Executive Director of Fundraising and Engagement include fundraising, retail, marketing and communications, digital, policy and public affairs, which is an unbelievably um, wide range of responsibilities. How do you manage to encompass them all? It's a good question. I've got a great team uh, supporting me. So I have five very capable directors and we work really well together and have a, a common shared agenda. Yeah, it's it's that's an it's an amazingly broad remit, which is actually highly creditable because one of the things that bothers me is that marketing expertise has dangerously become kind of siloed. And I always think, you know, there are a large number of business problems of which marketing is essentially part of the Sudoku, as I always call it. You know, you can't solve a Sudoku by chopping it into nine squares and handing each corner to a different department. And so it's actually brilliant to see someone with that kind of remit. I think. Um, uh, and it's interesting that it, the charity sector does it that way. I suppose at this point, before we get on to anything else, we've got to have the inevitable COVID question. So the pandemic will have had a tremendous impact on both demand and supply for most UK charities. Um, but what kind of year have you had? Yeah, it's been really intense. Um, as you said, it's impacted us on both the demand and supply front. And what's really strange about charities is that you would think when there's a massive increase in demand for what you do, that that would be good for business. But in our case, that could actually put us out of business. Um, so we've had unprecedented um, increases in need for what we do as a charity that cares for people at the end of life and offers support to people who are caring for someone or have been bereaved, you can imagine that in a year where more people have died than ever, um, that demand has gone up. There's also been a huge increase um, in demand for people who need bereavement support because the kind of 
um, our grieving rituals have just been interrupted. You can't have funerals in the same way. You can't physically comfort people. And that's been hugely uh, disruptive for people and um, very emotionally draining. So we we needed to lean into that and um, we increased our service offering. We have actually cared for more people this year than ever before. We also um, took a decision at the beginning of the pandemic to take our support line from six days a week to seven days a week and just trusted that we would be able to find a way to pay for it. So demand is massively up. Um, the stress on our workforce is massively up because caring for people in full PPE all day, as you can imagine, is just you know very draining. And that's after we sorted out the first few months of can we get PPE to people but then on the fundraising side, um, you know, it's been really challenging. Um, some of our activities have been absolutely shuttered. We've had to close all of our charity shops um, for a large part of the year. Um, we've had to cancel any face-to-face -face activities um, and that left a huge gap in our income. There've also been other areas that have done really well. Um, direct mail actually has been basically completely uninterrupted. And in fact, we've had record-breaking direct mail appeals one after the other. Um, and we've seen some increases in digital activity and in, in other parts of the portfolio. So altogether, um, we've been able to you know, keep the show on the road, um, but it's been a lot harder to basically end up in about the same place income wise. So face-to-face -face fundraising obviously disappeared. Uh, it's interesting that direct mail continues to do well. Um, and it's it, it's it's always been a mainstay, I guess. Is it of Marie Curie? Yeah, we have a, a great direct mail program, um, and uh, we saw our regular kind of schedule of appeals continue to go out, and each one of them did better than expected. And then on top of that, we also had an emergency appeal um, that through direct mail alone raised over a million pounds. So that was on hold, is that right? But you also you also produced, I think, Saatchi's, um Saatchi and Saatchi produced it pro bono, I'm pleased to say. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the On Hold campaign? Yeah, so um, we we could see that there was going to be this big gap in our finances uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. We were in the middle of our biggest um, public-facing campaign, which is the Great Daffodil Appeal, and uh, we were having to cancel that for the safety of our volunteers even before the country went into lockdown. And so we knew we needed to do something quickly to... Um, steady the ship. We were very lucky that Saatchi offered to help us. And we had this insight that um, there were gonna be brands that needed to cancel planned campaigns. I mean, if you were a cruise company in March and April, you were gonna be <laughs> getting out of everything. And there were gonna be other brands that might be able to continue their products or services during the pandemic, but their booked campaigns were gonna be tonally inappropriate. So we knew that we had an opportunity to get media space either severely discounted or even donated. Um, but in order to take advantage of that, we needed to have some compelling creative. Um, and Saatchi just stepped in to help us with that. It was a unique challenge because we were all still figuring out how to work remotely. And um, we needed to create this um, very quickly using only stock footage and found footage because we couldn't go shoot anything. And we needed to turn it around really quickly. Um, Saatchi, from the first meeting that we had with them to being on air, I think that was maybe three weeks, um, they showed us a couple of ideas and the on hold idea was just so compelling. It was based on the insight that, uh, you know, lots of things that make life worthwhile just weren't going to be able to happen 
anymore, theater, sporting events, um, but that for people who were already at the end of life, um, you know, they might not live to see the other side of the pandemic and um, we needed support right then and there. Um, and it was really powerful and helped us raise over 7 million pounds. That's absolutely fantastic. Very good, very good insight, I have to say, uh, because it's a you know brilliant reframing, which is that um, you know for most people it's a pause, but actually for people for whom this is the end, um, you know, you know, obviously, I mean, there are far more. It's worth remembering there are far more people at the end of life without COVID than with, even at a you know I think a fairly high level of um, infection. I think that's right, isn't it? And that must have made end of life care. Really, I, I, I know of it. My wife is a vicar, so I know of a few cases through personal experience. Have you looked at technology at all um, in terms of, you know, how you might help people? I mean, obviously, commune with family and friends virtually rather than having personal visits and so on. Is there anything you've been able to do there? Absolutely. So, um, first of all, there was a lot of our activity that we just couldn't continue doing face to face. And so... Um, we uh, converted quite rapidly to um, online um, telehealth visits for um, some of the people that we were looking after. Um, there were uh, some things we needed to work on around that, helping uh, people who weren't very tech savvy figure out how to use it. Um, we had uh, some very generous donations of iPads uh, to a number of our hospices. Um, and then uh, there were some very patient staff working with the family members on the other side of that to help them understand how to use this because there were, you know, it's easy for those of us who are very connected uh, to take it for granted, but there's a lot of people who had never done this before. Um, that was also something that actually our fundraisers did quite a bit of. Um, we have 500 volunteer fundraising groups all over the country who are just amazing and raise us 5 million pounds a year. Um, many of them are people who are retired, have been retired for a long time and weren't you know, savvy about uh, Zoom calls, et cetera. And at first they just said, well, we'll just wait. Uh, we'll put all of our activities on hold and when we can get together again, uh, we'll see you then. But over time, um, they realized this was gonna drag on. And they also realized that they, this was the same thing they were missing in terms of being able to stay in touch with their grandkids and um, uh, friends uh, who were more distant. So our fundraisers, in many cases helped uh, our volunteers learn how to master the technology that gave them a benefit in their personal lives, but then also enabled them to get back involved with Mary Curie again, which was great for everyone. I think it's very interesting because I think the um, what the pandemic's revealed is that the technology industry, which you know is magnificent and has achieved extraordinary things, but mostly in the consumer space, it's designing things for the optional purchaser. OK, and so, you know, things tend to get slightly focused around the early adopter or enthusiast. And I think in terms of technology design, there's a whole yawning gap there in terms of technology, making technology usable for people who don't want to use it. They have to. And so for the elderly, I think I, I think the tech world does a very, very poor job for the elderly. Also, probably in some cases for uh, people with disabilities. And I think I, I would I would be optimistic that actually that great gap has been noticed now over the last year and that new tech products will be brought in exactly to serve that market. I mean, I donated, I, I bought for Christmas my father, uh, who's 90, um, a Facebook portal, and I realized that he would never set it up himself. 
and I actually donated it to someone actually at end of life who was a, a close friend of my wife's who has terminal cancer and for her it was completely transformatory in the sense that she, the, the original purpose was to use it to talk to her family some of whom were quite dispersed around the world and she ended up using it to talk to her neighbors of course during lockdown and um, I think I, I would be really, really hopeful that there is a, a, a major investment in that kind of technology, which is, you know, particularly video calling made generally very, very easy for someone who, uh, you know, is operating under constraints. And I, I hope we can hope to see. Do, do you look at, uh, was this something you were looking at beforehand, before COVID forced everybody's hand at all? Uh, yes. So, um you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, telemedicine and the opportunities there. And to be honest, um, there was a lot of inertia that, oh, people don't want that. They they appreciate the face-to-face -face meetings. Um, yeah. And I think people underestimated actually how valuable it is. If you're someone who is um, has multiple uh, conditions, um, that's a lot of different consultants you might need to be seeing. And you could spend half your week uh, commuting to all the different visits because they're, they don't tend to be co-located in the same place and they don't tend to be on the same schedule. So that's really inconvenient. If you can make it possible to do some of that through uh, remote visits, that makes a huge impact. So I think what people assumed was just, well, we'll have to make do with this actually has a lot of benefits that people would want to continue. What will be interesting is if we can do this intentionally and address some of those snags around um, unequal access to the tech and unequal access to understanding how to use it up front, I think it could be really powerful. I, th I think there was a terrible mistake that the world made about video calling technology because it's something that's been fascinating me for about four years. And what they did, I think, and this is a sort of saliency problem, they compared it to the physical alternative. Now, obviously, no, no one, even with the best technology in the world, nothing is going to replace a hug or a handhold or something like that, you know, and, and in, in the business context, nothing's going to quite replace a handshake. We get it. OK, but what people didn't spot was the opportunity cost of requiring everything to take place physically. So I said, you know, when people say, well, this is this Zoom call isn't as good as a meeting, I would say, yeah, that's absolutely true. But this meeting would never have happened in the real world, you know, because you're in Milwaukee and, you know, I'm in London and the other guys in kind of Delhi. OK, you know, it would have taken eight months to organize and, you know, it would have cost about eight thousand pounds in travel, you know, by the time we'd finished. So people spotted the relative, you know, disadvantage of the technology, which was salient. Whereas the magical potential advantage was something they were missed. And I think in telemedicine, uh, I genuinely hope this accelerates telemedicine to a huge degree. Because, you know, if, I mean, you know, you can look at other problems, you know, men's reluctance to go to their GP. Does telemedicine, you know, and the prospect of a 10 minute discussion with a doctor online, you know, does it solve that problem? Um, and so I think there was this terrible thing, which is everybody, uh, everybody, they didn't do a cost benefit analysis. They just did a cost analysis beforehand. And um, I, yeah, I would, I would be very, very hopeful about this. On the other hand, I have noticed, you know, partly through my wife's experience, that physical presence and physical contact at particular moments of this kind just seems to have a value you never, I never would have anticipated. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, if you imagine this thing happening in, say, 1988 or you know, 1998, uh, rather than now, um, and you can imagine how much worse it would have been by comparison, that, you know, it's something to be grateful for, I think. I, mean, I have to say, by the way, the, the seven million 
uh, fundraising is an extraordinary achievement. I mean, that really is absolutely brilliant. And presumably the media cost was commensurately lower as well. Yeah, it was all donated. Wow. Uh, did it bring in new donors as well, significantly? It did. Um, lots of new donors, and, and many of whom um, chose not to give us their contact details to follow up with them, and that's okay. I think um, one of the trends that we are going to see in fundraising is more people um, giving opportunistically and having a wider portfolio of things that they give to rather than just having one or two uh, favorite causes that they lock into. And I think one of the mistakes that fundraisers have made is putting um, so much emphasis on how do I get somebody locked into a direct debit? That's not necessarily the way people want to give. And I think recognizing that and letting that be okay um, is going to be really important. It's really interesting that, isn't it? Because I think probably the charity sector collectively has done itself a slight disservice in always pushing a relationship as the um, necessary condition of a donation. And it makes obvious sense. And by the way, it's worth saying, isn't it, that I suppose the regular small direct debit gift was one of the big innovations of the last 20 years, wasn't it? Um, uh, you know, that uh, the two pounds a month donation, um, that was a significant innovation in the fundraising sector. Uh, that, you know, you always went for the biggest gift possible. And someone said, well, what about people, lots of people who would be prepared to give a small amount regularly, uh, who, you know, uh, you know, are we, are we asking for the same thing? But equally, it brings its own problems, which is people go, I just want to give a present, a gift. I don't want to start a relationship. I mean, Marie Curie is interesting because it is a charity with a very, very distinctive purpose, I guess. Um, how, how do you, how, how is public perception of Marie Curie, it's presumably pretty strong. You have fantastic, I would imagine, kind of visual recognition for the daffodil. Where did that come from? Actually, I've got to ask that question. Where did the daffodil come from? Because I should have I should have Wikipedia'd it beforehand, and I'm afraid I didn't. Um, so there's actually not um, one answer to that. The best answer that we have, um, and we have some stuff in our archives that backs this up, is that um, the daffodil became a symbol for cancer charities and Marie Curie started its um, life as focused primarily on cancer. Um, and uh, the, the Canadian Cancer Society was the first charity to use the daffodil um, as its symbol. It was actually um, someone from Scotland who created that for them. Weird, okay. Um, and then other <laughs> other charities around the world have adopted it. So there's, um, the, I think the Irish Cancer Society, um, there's one in Australia, all have daffodils as part of their emblem. Um, you know, it, it is not, um, uh, for us, it's because it's so um, associated with Mary Curie, we wouldn't want to change it, but it doesn't necessarily have meaning uh, per se. Um, we like to think of it as something that reminds us of hope, that you plant it in the dark part of the season, and then in spring, there it is with its bright, cheerful colors, um, reminding us that there is another light at the end of the tunnel. Ah, yeah, lovely. I suppose I've got to ask an interesting question, which is a bit controversial, and don't answer if you don't want to. What Do you have a policy developed on assisted dying, for example? Uh, this must be something that crops up all the time. Um, it, it does, and it's, um, it is very sensitive for our staff. So our, our, our policy is that we are not advocating for a change in the law. 
you're not advocating. The, the only thing that changed my mind on this, which is just interesting from a behavioral science perspective, I've always been deeply inimical to the idea, I think, uh, partly because, of course, it's a very thin end of the wedge kind of issue, isn't it? The only thing that fascinated me, which was a finding I heard, uh, which was that the vast majority of people who go through the procedure to get permission for it don't actually go through with it. And it occurred to me that it isn't that people want to want a, an assisted death or an accelerated death. It's simply that they want to know that it's an option. So that, that I'd always assumed that once you'd kind of got the paperwork sealed in countries where it's allowed, and once you've got everything signed off by two lawyers, a doctor and so on, that everybody immediately then went and, uh, you know, um, you know, essentially, you know, went off to Zurich, as it were. And what seems to be the case is that the vast majority of people die a natural death, but it's hugely reassuring to them to know that there is an alternative if they so choose. And I, that's always kind of puzzled me on that subject because uh, I, can, I, I can completely understand why someone who doesn't want an assisted death would want to know that the option was present for them. And that's slightly, uh, I met someone from one of these charities who promote it and promote a change in the law. And that kind of made me a bit more, uh, I suppose a bit more ambiguous about the topic. But at, at present, your policy is no change. Yeah. Another interesting question. Um, uh, you, you actually, I, I think you started your working life at Goldman Sachs, is that right? I did. So, yeah, and you're in the investment banking division there. Uh, how did you migrate from Goldman Sachs to Marie Curie? What, what was the journey? Yeah, so um, I joined Goldman Sachs, um, but I hadn't planned on being a banker. I'd always wanted to do something uh, with social purpose. Uh, I had some career advice in university that I would be more impactful uh, if I had some business experience. Um, but because I'd been a philosophy major, uh, it wasn't immediately obvious how I would get any business experience. Um, but the uh, Wall Street banks were very open to hiring people who were willing to work hard and were fast learners. So I got this job at Goldman. It opened some amazing doors and I got to work in New York, Frankfurt, and then came to London and uh, had a very successful career there. Could have stayed, but um, I didn't want to lose uh, sight of that goal of getting back into uh, a social purpose. So um, I took a job in between Goldman and Marie Curie that was a venture philanthropy fund that was set up by some ex-venture capitalists and private equity guys who wanted to apply private sector market discipline uh, to the social sector to see if you could uh, radically scale up uh, good ideas for society. So that was a, a nice segue because it allowed me to apply some of the learning that I had from Goldman to a social context. Um, and then I actually took the job at Marie Curie because it was a fundraising role and because I didn't know anything about fundraising because I was very interested in behavioral science. So for me, the idea of how do you motivate people to want to give money for nothing in return personally was a really challenging intellectual question and working in fundraising gave me an opportunity to explore that. And working in a marketing role uh, for an organization that is trying to get people to care about end of life when it's actively something that our brains don't want us to think about um, is another interesting intellectual challenge. It's actually interesting, isn't it, in two dimensions, because there's the behavioral science of um, the actual uh, fundraising, which is fascinating. I suppose you've got the behavioral science of the end beneficiary in your case. 
which I think is probably fascinating as well. In other words, there must be actually really interesting applications of sort of framing towards end of life care. Because, you know, it's an event to which you could react in multiple different ways in, in, in some sense. But there's also, I think, a very interesting angle, which is the behavioral science of people working in the charity sector, which is I think it's fair to say that this is why, you know, I think your time in venture capital must have been illuminating. There's always a danger in any what you might call altruistic endeavor that because the performance of your actions makes you feel good, generally, you don't direct the same scrutiny towards the efficacy of what you're doing that you would do in a commercial setting. So I think there's, al there's always a danger in the charity sector that lots of people engage themselves enthusiastically in doing things that make them feel good and look good. And so I, I think there's, there's a great thing called the effective altruism movement, is that right, which kind of attempts to take scientific values and look at where a donated dollar really makes a difference and where it actually, in some cases, I suppose, at the extreme can even be counterproductive. So one of the experiments they did, which they did using Impesa in the um, I think I think it's Kenya and Tanzania, the two countries where you have that Vodafone mobile payment system, is they just tried giving people who are demonstrably very poor. The, the heuristic they used, I think, is that your housing was entirely made of natural materials. Um, that sounds a bit strange to a Western audience, which is mm, organic housing. But actually, if you don't have any concrete breeze block or a corrugated iron in your housing, it's fairly much proof that you're you know, uh, wealth constrained. And so they then contact those people and just say, we're going to give you a fairly large amount of money every month for two years, and then it's going to stop. And then they go and see what the actual knock-on effects were two, three, four, five years later. And it was an interesting experiment because, you know, a lot of charity fundraising wants to give people what it thinks is good for them. In other words, we must supply water, or we must supply this particular thing. And they become fixated regardless of the personal needs of the recipient. And what was interesting about this experiment is that when you gave people money, they spent it in lots of diverse ways. You know, one guy actually sort of started a band and bought recording equipment, and they thought, God, you know, what a totally irresponsible thing to do. And he actually turned it into quite a successful music business. Uh, quite a lot of people spent the money on education, for example for their own children. And it was very, very interesting to see what people did. And they did a whole variety of different things. The number of people who spent it irresponsibly was very small. Uh, in fact, you know, there would have been a tiny percentage, but almost everybody ended up richer by a great, a significant deal more than the amounts donated. And so this is called give directly, if you go online. The idea is it's completely sort of very low friction altruism. Um, but I think experimentation here and understanding, I mean, we've just done some work about a year ago for Christian Aid, where we had completely bizarre findings uh, from a test where, for example, mentioning gift aid depressed both the volume of response and the level of generosity. So, you know, the most logical thing of all, which is to remind people that for every pound you give, uh, we actually receive another 25 pence. Oddly, you know, I mean, you know, in economic rationality, you'd think, well, why would anybody be dissuaded by that? But strangely, um, it actually had a major depressive effect. And so I, I think what you can find about um, generosity, it's absolutely rich with these kind of counterintuitive findings. Do, do you find the same thing yourself? Oh, a hundred percent. And um, I, I think there's some really valuable things about the effective altruism movement. And I think it's really important for charities to 
apply that lens to their service delivery and make sure that they're eking out uh, you know, as much good as possible from every pound that they're investing in that. And I think specifically in international development, uh, cash transfers should be the null hypothesis. You shouldn't assume that the program that you're going to bring is going to add more value. You should look at what would happen if you just gave the money directly to people. Um, so I think that's a really positive development. The thing I think that the effective altruism movement gets wrong is that they aren't applying that same lens to how well they are at getting people on board and giving money. Um, and the fact is that um, you know there's a reason that you don't have price comparison websites for charities as a crowder in of assets. Um, it's because it's a it's an emotional thing. Uh, so you know I think Mary Curie raises more money than the EA movement raises in the UK as a whole across all charities. Um, and, th and that's because we, our marketing is very effective at tapping into why people wanna give. So what I would love to see is marrying up that same um, emotional, uh, sorry, that same scientific method to how you get people to give with an organization that is really rigorous at impact measurement on what happens uh, to that gift, and that's where the magic happens. But I think EA is only looking at one side of the equation. What's your favorite, if you have one, your favorite counterintuitive finding? Um, oh gosh, there's lots. But um, so we have charity shops, and um, you know, <laughs> charity shops in most retail, you want your uh, place to look very clean and neat and um, uncluttered. And actually, people expect a charity shop to be kind of like a jumble sale. Um, and if it looks too tidy, then they assume that you're spending too much of the money on making the shop look good and people will be less likely to donate there. I suppose there's also that element where you want it to be a bit of a souk because there might be the mentality of finding a bargain. And so uh, there, may, there may be even a psychological thing that if you feel that the shopkeeper doesn't quite know what they're doing, that there may be something actually underpriced or under, you know, uh, uh, undervalued amongst it all. Because I suppose, I suppose the interesting thing with charity shops is you have a strange mixture of what you might call altruistic customers, customers through necessity, and customers through, um, uh, you know, what you might call, you know, uh, you know, bargain hunter customers, essentially. Um, but no, it's, that's very interesting because, I mean, one of the most interesting things is that one of the biggest effects in grocery retailing on price perception isn't the actual price, it's how the store's laid out. And you get cultural differences like that. So in India, for example, uh, if you have too much elegance in the shop, people kind of, you know, people just kind of reject it as being expensive. They want a bit of a competitive sport angle to the business of shopping. So that no, I, I can absolutely imagine that. So all your instincts in how you'd try and maximize value in conventional clothing retail, particularly, you've actually got to reverse them, uh, which is really interesting. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
for Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you think, by the way, I, I've got a, I've got an idea about charity shop retail because quite often you get the um, essentially you 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 are told by the charity shop what your donation raised, which is I think a wonderful feedback mechanism. Do you do that yourself? We do. Um, it's actually a legal requirement if you have ticked ah, the gift aid box. If you've ticked gift aid, yeah. right. Now I wonder if there's actually a tax um, tweak there where you actually get the money. Okay. Now, what I would do is, if you give if you give things to a charity shop, I would argue that the government should actually give the donor the money with a very strong injunction to donate it. Okay. So you know you could have a check which you're encouraged not to cash. Okay. Now, at the moment, what I'm saying is that the uh, the extra tax money is invisible to you because essentially it's something the charity receives which the government gives, and so you're bypassed in that process. And I've often thought that actually there's a whole extra market here if you if you gave people a small financial incentive to donate. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about your current donors, but I just wonder if there's a, a way to expand the charity shop sector by saying, OK, you get 25 percent of your, you know, your donation. And we very strongly encourage it. And indeed, most people would actually probably not cash the check. Um, and therefore, the check would buy, the money would by default go to the charity. But I've always found that something that includes altruism with a little smidgen of self-interest, okay, doesn't have to be huge, is often more effective than pure altruism. Uh, that it's an interesting question in the whole sort of uh, green movement, which is there's what you might call hair shirt altruism, where it's all about pure sacrifice, and then there's what you might call electric car altruism, where you know. Uh, undoubtedly, you know, the, the signaling value and, and actually the emotional feeling for yourself contributes to the decision to buy an electric car, but not to 60 in 4.5 seconds isn't irrelevant either, you know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, that is actually how the gift aid system for charity shops works. The only way that you can claim gift aid on the clothing uh, that you've donated or the, the goods you've donated uh, the only way the charity can get the gift aid is to let you know that this is how much your stuff has raised. And you can, at that point, write to the charity and ask for that money back. Right. Um, but if you don't, then the charity keeps the money and claims the gift aid. Now, it's interesting that you know about this, but you didn't know that that's how it works. I didn't know that. I, assume, I assumed it was an overwhelming default that the money had to go to the charity shop. Now, obviously not, but I mean, it might be interesting to test reversing the polarity so that the money comes back to you, but uh, you are very strongly exhorted to donate it to the charity. I don't know. Just intrigues me. Yeah, I mean, that would, that would be interesting to test and then, and also um, giving the option of, and would you like to top up your donation at that point? Um, yes, uh, yeah. But yeah, no, I, and I think um, 
you know, the, the point you made about gift aid um, reducing response in the Christian aid test that you did. Um, I think that's because it introduces something very logical into the mix when, again, it's inherently an emotional thing. And this is the thing that is the hardest to explain to people in the charity who aren't uh, in fundraising. So people from services or the CFO, everybody thinks that people think in a different way than they do. Um, and so they think all you need to do is explain better what we do um, and just educate people and then they'll want to give. And that's just not how it works. No, because essentially what you're doing is taking an act of love in some sense and you're kind of transactionalizing it, which destroys the very thing you're trying to create, I suppose. And that, that, that intrigued us because what we said is, look, all the other tests that worked, like, you know, uh, changing the orientation of the envelope so the flap was on the narrow side, you know, that kind of stuff, or better paper stock, interestingly, those are the kind of things that a procurement department or a rational organization would reject. And yet they worked really sig highly significantly, actually. And next year, of course, we can combine two or three of those interventions into one and see what the multiplier might be. And yet the one thing that would have got through a board of directors without a demand for a test, the one completely logical thing, and this is the whole thing about logic destroying magic in a way, the completely logical thing was deeply inimical to the very thing it was supposed to, supposed to achieve. And I, this just really, this is why it's such a wonderful sector, because it's not... I mean, I suppose there's probably an element of karma to it that it's it's you know it, it it has its roots in kin altruism and it has its roots in reciprocal altruism, I suppose. But it it is very very interesting, and it's a it's a very very interesting, particularly your special your focus on end of life, because it's something which is probably very present in people's minds, but they don't want to be made too present which is interesting. How, how does your donor base skew in terms of age, just for instance? I mean, all charity uh, donor bases tend to skew more elderly, don't they? Or do you find that other channels like digital actually ch reverse that? So we look a whole lot like the donor base for uh, charities in general. I think this is another mistake that charities sometimes make, um, is thinking that they're particularly special. Actually, most giving uh, is done by a civic core who have a number of charities that they give to. And there's a huge amount of overlap between us and Oxfam that you wouldn't think of being terribly similar, but we're both large UK charities. And um, if you're a socially minded person, you probably have a portfolio that includes a development charity, a health charity, et cetera. And it's about what's important to you. Um, so there's way more overlap in everybody's donor database than people think that there is. Um, and so it would be unusual for a large charity to have a donor uh, database that looks a lot different than the sector as a whole. We probably skew slightly older, slightly within digital. Um, our digital gifts probably come from a slightly younger person who's giving slightly more, um, but most of our money uh, comes from direct debits and legacies. And that looks like the rest of the UK. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, is there a kind of, I've always wondered this, uh, could charities fund, and it wouldn't be necessarily very expensive, a kind of, given, given that, as you said, the motivation is actually surprising me, uh, it's a bit like the Byron Sharp lesson, actually, people have a portfolio of things to which they give. There's probably a little bit of a double jeopardy effect in that people give more frequently to certain charities um, 
in other words, the, the charity that is in most people's portfolio is also donated to slightly more regularly than within the portfolio. So you probably have something that mirrors that uh, inverse, you know, uh, the Dirichlet distribution. Um, is there scope for a kind of R&D centre for charitable? I mean, is there a worldwide kind of Santa Fe Institute for charitable giving? Because I mean, I remember working in direct marketing back in the 80s and I was, you know, and, you know, the two big innovations, I suppose, were free pen. You know, that was, I mean, now that sounds, this is one of the things, it sounds utterly uh, fatuous. But uh, first of all, you're making giving easier. Secondly, people don't throw away a pen. Thirdly, there's probably a tiny bit of reciprocation bias that goes on. There was the regular direct debit. I think there's scope for, you know, impulse donations using mobile devices. And I was just wondering if there's a central kind of skunk works uh, for um, charitable giving, which could be funded with an absolutely trivial amount of money uh, by a large number of charities, because actually the learnings, to be honest, would apply to all of them. Yeah. Um, so this is a coordination problem in charities, yeah. because you're absolutely right. All of the big needle moving innovations are things that are not specific to one charity. No. It's sector things like direct debits. Um, you know, a century ago, inventing charity shops. Um, Actually, it's one of the things that annoys me being in an ad agency because we spend too much time focused on the brand question and too little time focused on the category question. And I was talking to people in um, AB InBev, actually, and saying, you know, the problem with the beer market is there are thousands and thousands of people agonizing about why you should drink Budweiser rather than Heineken. But the question of what makes people drink beer rather than wine actually falls by the wayside and I, I my hunch would be there's an interesting finding by the way in behavioral science which is people don't give it this doesn't just apply to charitable donations it actually applies to you know presents right people don't give as much as they'd like okay and of course we've created a world where it's just easier to spend money on yourself than it is to spend money on someone else i mean if i want to give a book to someone on amazon right? If I want to buy a book for myself, it's one click, right? If I want to give a book to somebody else, it involves finding out their goddamn post address, you know, typing in their postcode. And actually, most people don't give as much as they would like, is the finding, that actually people would be happier being more generous than they are in all kinds of ways, but the environment is more conducive to selfishness than it is to altruism. So that coordination problem that no one's looking at, you know, we could spend ages looking at, you know, doing the, you know, the brand onion for Marie Curie and so forth. But actually, the really important question is, could we get the entire rich world to give 1% more? And as you said, the free pen isn't specific to Marie Curie. I mean, except for the any tokenist branding on the pen, which I suppose has a small value. And, and that, that strikes me as really interesting. Yeah, so it's... um. The issue is, again, you've got to get everything, uh, any spending decisions through a hyper-rational finance department. And the finance department will say, well, because you're putting money into a pool that could benefit other people and, you know, that creates free rider issues, you know, why would we do that? So in a way, I think um, some central innovation that is funded by the government um, to just move the needle. I, I, I think charities... I tell my team all the time, our competition isn't other charities. It's all the other things that people can do with their time and money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so... Actually, your competition is, I mean, donate a goat, right? Okay, at least spot... I mean, there, there were a whole load of disputes about this because apparently goats aren't necessarily a good thing. 
<laughs> you know, they'd tear up the undergrowth and so forth. But give someone a Christmas present by giving someone else a goat was at least spotting the fact that actually your competition is, to be honest, senseless Christmas present giving. You know, that was a really interesting case of targeting another altruistic behaviour, which is, to be honest, performative and entirely wasteful. And uh, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting you don't give your kids a Christmas present because you've, you've given it to charity. That would be, I think, cruel. OK, but rich people giving other rich people things they don't need. You know, if we could just eliminate 10 percent of that, geez, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm guilty of this myself, you know, but if someone else gives you a present, what are you supposed to do? You know, well, you could donate it to a charity shop. We always have a big campaign at uh, Christmas for. Uh, well, how you say that? Yeah, um, but, yeah. Um, the, the place where this is happening in a more coordinated way in the sector, um, which is great, is around legacy giving. Um, because in gifts and wills, there is a significant intention action gap um, where um, you know at least a third of people say they would be willing to give a gift to charity, but um, it's something like 7% do. Um, and that is about uh, driving conversations with solicitors to get them to always ask and to ask in a particular way um, to encourage that. So there's things that individual charities can do, but this is really a macro thing. Is there a legal mechanism, by the way, and I'd love to create this, where you give a certain amount to charity, okay, but the legatee can decide to spend it over a certain time. So in other words, you know, in other words, you give it to people to give to charity. Now, there's a risk that might crowd out. Actually, there's a risk that, that might crowd out altruistic behavior by the people who receive it. But let's say I inherited, you know, a thousand pounds from an aunt um, in um, uh, you know, 1980 something. Right. Now, let's say I'd also inherited a thousand pounds, which was mine to spend on charity over the next five years. A mechanism like that might be really interesting because there may be just a choice architecture problem, which is the, the will writer wants to be generous. The legator wants to be generous, but can't decide how. The other interesting mechanism, of course, is changing the default of the design of a will. So it starts off with a social norm around sort of, you know, 10 percent. And so, you know, you design a will so that it's presumptive that a certain amount will be given in this way. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I like the idea of um, allowing your um, you know, family members to donate the money because that also gives them the pleasure of that gift um, and without any of the pain. Which, that was my thought. Yeah. Which also might encourage more giving. I, I mean, I I think it would, because I, th I think it's a bit, I, I, think, I think charitable donations a tiny weeny bit like crack, <laughs> okay, which I think it's slightly, you know, it's probably habit forming. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> so, sorry to say that, this is Paul Dolan. Paul Dolan at the LSE, basically one of his generalizations is that lots and lots of things have this kind of effect where, you know, the endorphin rush essentially, you know, um, is, is sort of self-perpetuating. So that might be a really, you know, I'd be really interested. A guy to talk to, by the way, who's more interested in looking at large-scale philanthropy, Jesse Norman, who I, I think now is Chief Secretary to the Treasury. But um, uh, he's, uh, you know, the, in political terms, pretty much the sharpest tool in the box, in my experience. And he's very interested in creating a culture of philanthropy, which we, we don't really have in the UK to the extent that exists in the US. It's not always brilliantly directed in the US. There's a heck of a lot of vanity going on, but it is at least there. And I think we are missing that probably. Yeah, I think the social norms are different here. And um, it's something I'm very aware of having come from the US. Okay, let, let, let's do something here. Let's actually found this skunk works. I, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> okay, 
But you're absolutely right that most of the breakthroughs are category specific. They're not brand specific. OK, so, at the, you know, at the very simple level, you know, the regular small direct debit is an initial ask, which then makes it much easier to up the amount of the donation as someone goes through life. You know, there's the free pen. There's probably text giving, which was an innovation, which was a collective one. Um, and so I'm sure there are out there. There are five or six. Um, it's one of the you're absolutely right about the coordination problem, which is it's like exactly like home delivery, which is everybody knows we really need a kind of locker system, but no one individual entity is going to solve it on their own. And so, I mean, you know, could you get government to fund it? So you effectively say, OK, this is just an entity that um, experiments with, you know, because then government could, you know, I mean, cash, you know, cash machine donation where, you know, uh, you can opt in so that, you know, of the money you take out in cash or, you know, I mean, the mobile phone app, um, Impulse Saver, which I was partly involved in the invention of, which is a device a New Zealand bank instigated where you, there's a huge great red button on your mobile phone that goes ding, okay, which just transfers $5 into a savings account, right? Now, I, the fact that it goes ding is slightly trivial, but let's face it, we're all kind of chimps and we're more likely to press it 10 times if it makes a rewarding noise. But the purpose of that was to make saving as easy as spending, okay? And in the same way, making giving as easy as spending, I think. You know, the innovation in these fields is often spearheaded by the adult entertainment industry and gambling sites, okay, who are tragically the most innovative in forms of payment. Then it spreads to the private sector. And of course, it makes it then to the charitable. The public sector is probably the last to cotton on, typically. That's the kind of order of innovation adoption. And so, you know, we all saw that pizza thing in Dubai where you could order a pizza by just banging a button on a fridge. Uh, you know, th those kind of innovations, I think, are really, really... I I'd, I'd be happy to have a charitable button, you know, a 4G charitable button in my house where you just create the heuristic that if, if there's anything that happens, you're there to be... You should be grateful for, you know, give back to karma. And at the, pre at the present, you know, you have to fill in a form. Now, there's nothing more impulse killing than form filling. But this finance problem, by the way, is unbelievable, isn't it? So, so I mean, I think most political problems aren't really political. I think they're the Treasury, to be honest, okay, which is obsessed with centralised command and control and has a mental model of the world derived from mainstream economics, which is, uh, you know, unbelievably unhelpful to innovation. Um, and it, you know, it 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 drives also all kinds of totally insane decisions on the assumption that you're you design a world for Homo economicus. But I think within businesses, there's a, a a smaller problem, which is the kind of shareholder value movement and all those other things have kind of made every company an extension of its finance department. Um, and you know, I do worry about that because they have extraordinary negative power to kill experimentation. Yeah, and it, it contributes to this coordination issue within the charity sector because charities' objects, which are the legal limits of what they're allowed to do with their donated funds, are very narrowly described. Um, and so uh, you could make an argument that it would be a misuse of funds to be funding something that wasn't directly impacting you, but that had greater benefits for the sector, which makes it difficult to convince people is that true that actually to do something which benefits other charitable charities more than it benefits you, which is true of almost any form of cooperation, isn't it, right? Yeah, so um, 
each charity will have prescribed in law their charitable objects that describe the things that the trustees of the charity are legally allowed to apply the assets of the charity towards. So for Mary Curie, it's about um, helping people with terminal illness and the people uh, around them. Uh, so we can do things that um, benefit uh, people with terminal illness in coordination with other charities, but we couldn't necessarily apply our money towards a fund that was going to be improving charitable giving across the board. We would have to make it very clear how that would come back to help people with a terminal illness. Really interesting. I also think there's a thing, which is if you could get people, if you could create the charitable equivalent of the Starbucks stored value card, okay. Now, the magic of the Starbucks stored value card, okay, is that it makes every purchase from Starbucks seem half the price. Because if you've got 30 bucks, there is a billion dollars sitting on Starbucks stored value cards at any one time, right? And, um, the great thing is, if I've already got $30 sitting there in my Starbucks account and my kids go off, little buggers used to bloody treat their friends because they had my Starbucks app. And, you know, it didn't just extend to buying themselves coffee, which was kind of the intention, which is, you know, when, you, when they were nine years old, I said, look, if you're stuck, I want you to be able to go somewhere that's warm and safe, right? So I gave them my Starbucks app. Little buggers started basically treating their friends to lavish feasts. But nevertheless, okay, unintended consequences. Nevertheless, it did have the marvellous effect uh, that, um, uh, you know, if there was $30 there and they spent 15, it felt like eight. So I wonder if there's a kind of interesting thing where you can get people to give money to charity and then the decision as, how, as to how to apportion that pre-allocated fund is a later decision. Yes. So that would be, I mean, I suppose the Charities Aid Foundation, a few things like that are close to that kind of thing, aren't they? They are, but though you, the barrier to entry there is relatively high because you have to yeah. have a certain amount of money to open an account. There's a fee and everybody um, yeah. hates the idea of any of their money not going to the charity. Of course, yeah. That's one of the biggest findings in behavioral science, isn't it? Which is that we are driven practically insane. Despite the fact that obviously there is a cost to spending money wisely, we're driven practically insane by the thought that some of our money goes towards administration. Yeah. Right, which is, which is also crazy because if you think about, again, um, a development that wasn't charity specific, that has massively increased giving, um, it's the development of sites like Just Giving that make it really easy to give. But, you know, consumers really object to the fact that there's um, a small fee for administering that. Well, to be honest, that fee for us, they, they can process the donation and get the gift aid on it cheaper than I can. Um, right. And they also invest massively in server capacity so that if you are lucky enough to be NHS charities together when Captain Tom decides to do his big walk and you have millions of people trying to donate at one time, NHS Charities Together, I think, had two employees at the time, their website would have absolutely crashed. The only way that they could do that is because Just Giving has this kind of social shared good that everyone can access that they keep up and running. But individual donors don't understand that. And the largest number of complaints in the sector this year were people complaining about fees on their donations to Captain Tom's campaign. And of course, so they're, they're kind of like the Amazon web services for the charity sector, effectively. They, they operate as a kind of consolidator in server capacity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one of my ideas, which you'll like, which has just been picked up by the Adam Smith Society, is I think uh, we should never have, never again in the UK should we have tax cuts. 
okay? You should keep the tax level constant and you should pay people annual rebates, okay? Because as I pointed out to people on the political right, tax cuts are completely pointless because after two years, you don't notice them, okay? They're just sort of mentally priced in. Whereas if actually you sent people a rebate check, okay? Now, interestingly, it would also make short-term tax rises much easier to swallow because you'd simply tell people, look, unfortunately, we've had COVID, so for the next two years, your rebate's going to be halved, which is much, much less painful than telling people they're going to have to pay more money, okay? So actually, we should set, and, and, and you can see this behaviourally in the US where most people overpay because they'd rather receive a rebate check once a year than receive invisible savings month by month. Now, my contention would be if we actually instigated this, it would be a complete and the Adam Smith Society are on board, at least Madison Piriers, right? Uh, this would be an absolute boon for the charity sector because you'd have you it, within your rebate check would be a strong injunction to donate the money. Okay. It could be to the NHS, it could be to Marie Curie, it could be to Oxfam, right? Now, there's a particularly beautiful thing about this, which is if you're a dual income family with a house in Clapham and a bloody holiday home somewhere else, you're right, okay, um, it, there would be a strong social injunction that you donate a large part of your tax rebate check. You know, all those people who go around saying we should fund the NHS, but don't actually give any money to the NHS, you're calling their bluff, right? Equally, if you're a struggling family, right, no one really would really expect you to um, donate it at all. So it's a brilliant form of price discrimination, effectively, where the tax rebates would go to the people who needed them and the tax cuts wouldn't go so much to the people who didn't, because you could create strong social pressure around, effectively, you could form a 100% club, for example. You know, I, I might join the 50% club, you know, being absolutely honest. You know, I've got enough self-awareness there to know that it's quite nice to have a little bit of a lump sum. But at the same time, you know, I'd probably join the 50% club where I'd give 50% of it away. So anyway, I, I'd urge you to get on board the Adam Smith Society, who wouldn't necessarily be the natural friends of the charity sector. Um, but um, I think there's so much scope for innovation here um, that, um, you know, it's, and also, of course, there's the value of a tax cut is meaningless, you know, or, you know, because essentially it just goes to where the Treasury decides it should go. Now, here I do get the pleasure of choosing what I want to support. But I think there's something we could do here which would be really significant. In other words, set quite a high tax rate, but then create an annual rebate. There's also the fact, actually, that for poorer people, one-off lump sum payments are much more behaviour-enhancing than a small smidgen of cost savings spread across 12 months. So, you know, this, you know, this lump sum could enable people to actually make a significant intervention in their own lives. So I, I, I think we could do something really, really interesting there. But I, I, oh, I'm sorry, we're a bit over time here. I'm, 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 but this is, the, this is what I actually quite like about Zoom, OK, because because there's a lower cost to a Zoom meeting than there is to a physical meeting. You don't have catering and, you know, um, actually the off agenda conversations are more valuable generally in business than on agenda conversations. So I see Zoom as actually being a kind of harbinger of, of uh, oh, harbinger, which is it, uh, of, you know, a, a new era of kind of business creativity simply because it does what open plan offices were designed to do but in a way that actually makes it work do you feel the same positivity about flexible working to a degree yeah it's actually personally it's been great but it's also been really good for our business in a lot of ways um 
in particular, uh, we probably had more meetings with major donors in the first month of lockdown than we were able to in a year normally because no one had to travel, everybody was at home, people were available. Um, and also, I think there was something that was underestimated, which was if we were preparing for a um, big donor meeting in the past, there would have been all of this anxiety about getting everything exactly perfect, et cetera. The fact that people don't really expect a Zoom meeting to be the same, the lowered expectations made it just easier to have meetings. And then people realized, you know, actually that works so we can just do more of this. It's been fantastic for us. No, and actually, the, you know, the, the, the domesticity, you know, the fact that there's a barking dog in the background is kind of humanizing. It's actually a benefit, not a weakness in a weird way. So I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm pretty much an evangelist for this. And telemedicine is another field which was, I think, grossly underestimated because it's, it's not that it's worse than a physical consultation. Obviously it is. But it's a hell of a lot better than no consultation at all. You know, which with you know males and GPs might the greater part of the problem, to be honest. Um, so this this is wonderful. So Meredith, it's been absolutely great to talk to you. Um, I always say, by the way, that former bankers are a great gift to the world because I think when people have worked in investment banking, they always want to do something that, because investment banking is highly lucrative but immensely ethereal, the typical person who leaves investment banking wants to do something which is really concrete. And that may be, as in a case locally, you start your own microbrewery. Because if you've been spending, you know, 15 years being paid to look at a, at a spreadsheet, actually dealing with a bit of hops, you know, actually dealing with a physical thing is a complete joy. But equally, in your case, you've done something even better still, which is you've done something concrete, which actually makes up, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not dissing microbreweries here, they make some contribution to humanity, but you've done something actually concrete and hugely beneficial. So I think we can all see you as part of a really useful trend of former bankers parlaying their skills into something else. So thank you very, very much indeed. Great to talk to you. And thanks so much for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Well, that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, the podcast has been brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, you can simply visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F-insight.com. The series is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. So a big shout out there. And to make sure you receive the next episode, do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, give us a like. Uh, only one more little parish announcement, which is Nudgestock, which is Ogilvy's Festival of Behavioural Science, is this year taking place on June the 11th. We've got speakers lined up, including Daniel Kahneman and John Cleese. So um, you might want to block out June the 11th for a homeworking day, shall we put it that way. Um, that's all. I hope you've enjoyed this. Thanks so much for listening. And um, I'll be back soon. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.